So Money, episode 369, Jennifer Wilcox. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Now, many of you I know are interested in simplifying your investment strategy. You want to reduce fees. You want to work with a service that you trust. And Wealthfront delivers. It builds and manages your personalized, globally diversified portfolio. To open an account, the minimum is just $500, and that gets you a periodically rebalanced, diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. There are zero trading fees, zero hidden fees, and advisory fees that are just a fraction of traditional advisors. In fact, Wealthfront manages your first $10,000 for free. To learn more and sign up, visit wealthfront.com forward slash so money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Happy Thursday. Just two more days until the weekend. Isn't that nice? I have a very special guest on the show, someone that I didn't even bother to go through the standard So Money questions with because her journey is so incredible, fascinating, scary, sad, joyful, all of those things wrapped in one that I was obsessed with hearing more about her personal story. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. Jennifer Wilkoff is our guest today. She is a woman who survived being victimized by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, incarcerated in one of New York's and the nation's most violent prisons, Rikers Island. Why? Because this was a result of inappropriately being told to plead guilty to a crime she did not commit she says. Shortly thereafter, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority exonerated her, claiming she was innocent. And Jennifer went on to continue to succeed as an author, a media personality, an entrepreneur, and a speaker. Today, she's the founder and producer of Speak Up Women, because she wants women to speak up, because that's one thing that she felt she couldn't do at the time of her imprisonment. Today, she is a number one radio show host, a number one international best-selling award-winning author. Can you believe it? Somebody who goes through such a tragedy is able to now come out on the other side of that, not only helping herself, but helping so many other women. I love this woman. I'm not going to even say anything more about her. You just have to listen to this episode. It's going to change your life. Here is Jennifer Wilkoff. Jennifer Wilkoff, welcome to So Money. I cannot wait to hear more about your past. It was a, a storied past, but a very influential one. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I'm so happy you're here with me today. I <laughs> I, I understand that you've had a, a quite the, the past with the law. I learned about you through Jennifer Witter, who was a guest on my show recently, a very popular episode. She's one of the country's leading public relations uh, CEOs, and she is um, helping you as you're trying to expand your platform, help many, many women through St- Speak Up Women, and your journey today goes back to an experience you had being victimized by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. You had to 
go to one of the country's most violent prisons, Rikers Island. And you say this is because you were told to plead guilty to a crime you didn't commit. Can you take me back to that moment in your life? What kind of a crime were you were you coerced into admitting you were guilty of when you really weren't? And why did you plead guilty when you weren't? So what happened for me was I was an award-winning, decorated, certified financial planner at one of the nation's largest investment firms, American Express Financial Advisors. And I had never had any complaints from any clients. I really was that person that was following protocol and doing all the things that you do in a regulated business that the financial industry has in place really for everybody's, I'll call it safety, the investors, the advisors, the the firms, that's the way the industry is regulated. So when I was referred an investment, I took that investment into my compliance supervisor's office, which is what you're supposed to do, and I discussed it with him. And at that moment, um, I didn't know at the time, but learned later on, that he decided not to follow the NASD rules or the firm's compliance supervision guidelines and asked me instead to fill out an industry form about the investment and told me I was on my own. And in the weeks that ensued after that, he and I continued to discuss the same investment, its status, and the money that was actually flowing out of my book of business from my clients into this investment. So he was supervising the investment. (laughs) And that investment became a scam. I didn't know it was a scam. I was the person who found out it was a scam. And I'm the person that reported it to the authorities. And what ensued after that was really sort of the most unbelievable experience for Anoush. I actually ended up being accused of being a co-conspirator of this scam and railroaded by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the judge in my case, and my own criminal defense attorney. And Your own attorney turned against you? Yes. He actually also uh, was part of the railroading process to the point where the night before my plea allocution, I was told by the judge five weeks before the date that I was going to plead guilty. My attorney hadn't even told me. And I was furious. And the night before they were going to have me plead guilty, they were still writing what they wanted me to say. They were concocting it. And I kept telling them, I'm not going to agree to this point. I'm not going to agree to that point. They kept accusing me of using my position as an investment, uh, as a financial planner at American Express to solicit clients for this investment. And I said, that's not true. Um, and they knew that it wasn't true because I had asked my attorney to actually give them a form, which is a standard form in the industry called the U5 form. It's a complaint form. And it was from the investors. And on that form, it actually said that they knew that it wasn't an American Express investment. I had told them it wasn't an American Express investment and other information on there. And they still insisted on using this platform that they had created and concocted. Um, and I said, I, I can't say that. Then they said, Then they came back and said, well, she's divorced. Let's have her say that she did it for the money. I was like, you've got to be kidding. 
Like it was really turning into a kangaroo court. When I was in the actual plea hearing the next day, I started going off the written statement they wanted me to read, and I started telling the truth in the court. And the judge and the assistant district attorney were furious. And in a plea allocution hearing, just for education for you and your listeners, um, you're not allowed to go off the record. The court is not allowed to take anybody off the record. When you actually look at the transcript from my hearing, I've been taken off the record twice. There are two boxes in the transcript that say off the record. That's me talking and telling the truth. <laughs> Tell me this. Why was the why was the district attorney's office, the judge, even your defense attorney so insistent on quote unquote railroading you? Like why did they they, they just needed someone to throw under the bus? Why did you become the target? Well, it was very interesting because since then, um, well, since then, uh, four months later, what happened was in the sentencing hearing, my, my criminal defense attorney stood up and the very first thing that happened was he dumped me publicly in that sentencing hearing, leaving me with no representation. And I read a statement into the record, which was also taken off the record. There's a box in that transcript, too. And the judge then turned to my attorney and asked him as if they had rehearsed it, if he would stand in so she could sentence me. He said yes. She sentenced me to Rikers Island for, for it was a six-month sentence, of which I was told to serve four. And then I was going to be on probation for five years. And he said, yes, she did it. And then she turned to me and said, well, you can appeal when you get out. And I was in disbelief. And at the time, and people have asked me, you know, why did I plead guilty? I was told by my attorney to, to do this. And what I've learned since then is that a lot of people get told to do this. And the attorneys really have no idea of the ramifications of what happens to the person that they're telling that to. They start using a tactic which is this number of months or this amount of time that they're giving you is better than what somebody might ultimately give you, which is this number of years. The other problem with this is that as part of my work currently, um, as I'm on the board of an organization called It Could Happen to You, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, what happens to people is if the ADA comes with a deal, to an attorney, that deal has a timeline. And if you don't take that deal at that time, the deals get worse. And they do that because they don't actually provide the defense attorney with the information that they have as to what they're using to actually build their case against this person. So the person actually gets put into these positions where the attorney starts putting pressure on them to take that deal because it's better than any deal they're going to get down the line if there is one. And the whole thing is really concocted to pressure somebody like I was who knew nothing about the justice system, had never been involved with the law, didn't know anybody who had ever been involved with the law. And for me, what I ended up finding out later was that the investigating detective on my case had actually told the district attorney's office when they when they talked to him 
before any grand jury hearings, he told them I was innocent, that there was no way I could have known what the actual perpetrators were doing. And when they interviewed him in the grand jury, they never asked him about me and they never allowed him to exculpate me. What I also came to find out was that the investment firm, which I told you about, um, actually three years later, I was in a financial industry regulatory authority hearing, which is called an arbitration. At that time, my compliance supervisor told us, and the arbitrators, by the way, <laughs> that he didn't follow the NEST rules. He didn't follow the firm's guidelines. And all the, and we also discovered that the firm was actually internally disciplining him for his lack of compliance supervision of me with these investments. At the same time, someone from American Express Financial Advisors, which is now Ameriprise Financial, was actually testifying at the grand jury hearings, telling them I never informed the firm, which was false, which, as many people may understand, that's perjury. So a lot of information was hidden in this case. And for me, I basically was at the, I was at the nexus of what was going on. I was the target. I was the number one best-selling author with a book called Dating Your Money. And this was a real estate scam. The police didn't read my, didn't read me my Miranda rights. There were other things that they did, which would, you know, absolutely horrify you. But what I've done since then is what's more pivotal and more important to me because I came out of Rikers and really wanted to know how could this happen? Why did this just happen? And what can I do about it? Because they took everything I had. They took every financial instrument I had. I had no bank account. I had no ATM. They literally decimated me and tried their very best to do it, including in the press and my reputation. And I sat there and I was like, this is not right. There's something that's not right here and it needs to be corrected. When we actually went to FINRA, we started to get wind of what was going on. And now we actually know so much about not only the firm, but also about the district attorney's office and what they did. I'm actually in a lawsuit against uh, the Manhattan district attorney now in federal court. And I'm also suing Ameriprise Financial as well for what they did. And what did you discover as far as the, the motive now that you are, what's your, basically, what's your main argument now um, as, as you are prosecuting? Well, you know, the interesting thing that happens, and this is something that I've actually been called to the governor's council to talk to them about. I've spoken with New York state legislators and continue to, because too often we hear about wrongful convictions that are about DNA cases, rape, murder, and other oh, things. Oh, I'm watching, watching, a, uh, making yeah. a murderer. Have you, been, have you watched that on Netflix? <laughs> Yes. And see, things like that. And uh, there was a Dateline episode that was on um, a few Sundays ago uh, in Jan actually at the end of January, about um, a group of people who were falsely convicted of a cab shooting, actually, in the Bronx and were left, actually, in prison for more than 20 years, even after two people had come 10 years later and actually confessed to the crime that they were falsely accused of. But you don't hear a lot about white collar crime because there isn't a body fluid or, you know, a DNA test that can be done. So what you really need are documents and you really need to be able to prove what actions somebody took 
that were not in alignment with what, what needed to be done. And the best part about the FINRA arbitration for me was that all claims against me in their entirety were denied completely, including fraud, withholding material facts, failure to disclose, and breach of my franchise agreement. So the financial industry said I was innocent. I did everything correctly. So when you start looking at the criminal case and you start looking at the FINRA arbitration, where they looked at all the evidence, it started to raise a lot of questions, which we already had about how could this happen. And one of the things that happens, I think, for a lot of people that don't understand is that prosecutors and the district attorney's offices, they are not regulated. They are not overseen. There's no oversight body. When you actually look at the judicial system, Farnoosh, it's amazing. And this is these are all things that I've learned because this happened to me. It's not the judge who's the most powerful person in the courtroom. It's the district attorney. The judges actually are overseen by a commission for their conduct. It's called the Commission on Judicial Conduct. And New York was one of the leading states that put this in place more than 40 years ago. And the criminal defense attorneys are overseen by the unified court systems. But the district attorney's offices don't have that. So they don't have that oversight. So they can actually run rampant in cases like mine, where things which are referred to as Brady material are things that they would hide so that the story that they want the grand jury, the judge, you know, and anyone else looking at the case to hear works for them. What they're supposed to do is they're actually supposed to be looking for the truth, not a win on their scorecard. And this has really become something that has muddied the waters for a lot of people. And I can tell you that I have people who have come to me with my story and have said, I have no idea how you were able to survive. I don't understand. This is happening to me at my job. This is happening to me at my firm. You're living my greatest nightmare. A compliance supervisor is supposed to be somebody who knows more than you, and they're regulated in the system and represented by the company to actually keep you on track and make sure that the things that are being done are compliant with the system. So when you have somebody that's a compliance supervisor that the company is not supervising properly, and you look at the district attorney who is doing something similar, I'll call it, and they're not being supervised and have no supervisory body, nobody's going to hold them accountable to rogue activities like what happened in my case. Oh, my gosh. We okay. talk on the show a lot about, <laughs> fair, I mean, yeah, I I'm listening people. to this and, and I, I think about a lot of the hypotheticals that we talk on this show, like imagine if you ha- hit rock bottom and had to start from zero, what would you do? You actually experience that. And I'm reading this article in Marie Claire that you, that you penned uh, talking about the run up to heading over to Rikers Island, which by the way, I don't know if you've watched on the news. I think they're going to shut it down. It's, it's just rife with scandal. And you were talking about how you, uh, the day that you were going to Rikers Island, you got handcuffed, escorted to a dingy basement room called the bridge where you waited with a bunch of prostitutes and drug addicts for the bus to Rikers. You talk about surviving, but how did you survive Rikers? People's ideas and romantic ideas, I'll call it if you can, um, about what Rikers Island is like if they watch Law and Order is nothing like what you can imagine. For me, 
Um, Rikers Island uh, is a place um, where violence really is prevalent. But one of the things that most people don't understand is they have this romanticized idea that when you're actually in prison, you're in a cell by yourself. And that cell locks and somebody opens it and closes it for you. Um, I was not in that environment. I was only in a cell for seven days. And then I was distributed to an open room, which was a dormitory is what they called it, of 50 beds that were rusty uh, metal with some very old and beat up uh, pad on it um, that was about eight foot long. And there were 50 of them in this room. So there was no locked door. There was no way to escape people that wanted to harm you, steal things from you, uh, do whatever. And um, the showers, for example, were like your high school showers where they were a large shower uh, stall that had, you know, nine different shower heads in there so that people, you know, could go in and shower and get out. So for many people, they have this idea of being in a cell. It wasn't like that at all. So I didn't sleep for four months. You know, I was basically on high alert and high adrenaline alert for four months straight because you just didn't know when somebody was going to act out or start a fight or, you know, all of these different things that can occur in in such close quarters. Um, So for me, there were two things that were driving my survival. The first one was that I really felt like what was happening to me was bigger than me. And I kept telling my mother, there's got to be somebody that I'm supposed to help in this journey. And as soon as I find that person, this will all change. (laughs) And so I kept looking for that person. And it was ironic because when I got into the dormitory, the person who was my bunkmate in the uh, bed next to me, um, she asked me, you know, why I was there and all in a, a brief conversation. And I said, you know, and I think there's really somebody I'm supposed to help. And she said, well, that person would be me. And I was floored. You know, I'm white. I'm Jewish. She was African-American and Muslim. We should have been completely different people, but we were both very peaceful people. And she turned to me and she said, that person is me. She said, I have been searching and praying to Allah for someone to help me. And she started telling me about her life and about the things that she had been experiencing. And over four months, I did just that. I really helped her to transform a life that she actually felt was working against her, that she didn't like. She didn't like the people in her life. And I helped her to see her way clear so that she could create a different life. And it was so remarkable and such an amazing experience for both of us. The night before I left, she gave me her prized possession, which was her Quran with a note in it. And I still have that with me. So it was something very moving. The other thing that got me through is that I was told by um, my Aikido sensei not to be my nice, helpful self. Well, that sort of worked, but people would come over and they would ask me for advice or information or I had books and things and I helped them. And one of the things that I did was I actually was an anomaly there. I was asked for help by officers. I gave them information about books they could read, things they could look at for their own self-improvement. I helped inmates. People asked me about meditation, yoga. They talked to me about their fears of getting out and being in the environments that they used to be in and how they were afraid they were going to go right back to what they were doing. 
whether it was drugs or prostitution or whatever. And so for me, I ended up being um, this unlikely, I'll call it, and unsuspecting beacon of hope and positivity and being able to shine the light for people on the way that their lives could be. I even got to the point with the deputy warden where she asked me to talk to the programs director at this weekly meeting that I started going to. And she said, why can't we get a personal development program in here like she's talking about? <laughs> it was nuts. It was wow. really crazy. So what have you have you been keeping in touch with the with your with your cellmate, the one who gifted you her Quran? No, one of the things that I was well, I was instructed by uh, my Aikido sensei when he was preparing me for this experience, thank God, was he said, this is not the place where you go and you make friends. Um, that's not what prison is about. <laughs> you go in, you do what you need to do, and you get out and you go on. And you go on with your life. He said, whatever happens to you in there, you do the best you can, and then you move on. And that is what I did. And your Aikido sensei, can you explain that? Yes, of course. Um, my beloved Aikido sensei was Don Cordoza of the Wellness Resource Center in Rhode Island. And um, unfortunately and sadly, uh, he passed away a few years ago. But one of the most important things he did for me and a legacy that he has left because of it with me is when I was actually um, aware that I was going to be sentenced and taken to Rikers Island during that period between my plea hearing and the sentencing hearing, um, I went, he said, I want you to come up and see me. And what he did was something that nobody else in my life could have done. He ran, Aikido is a martial arts practice that I practice, as well as another one, uh, which is called Shintaido. And what he asked me to do is he said, I need you to unlearn all the things that I have taught you and that your Shintaido sensei has taught you about respecting your partner. And I need you to learn the things I'm going to teach you now so you can survive. He was a former street fighter, and he had both a corrections officer in his dojo as well as a police officer. And so he knew how he was familiar with how the system worked and what skill sets I actually needed to survive if anybody ever attacked me or I found myself in a position where I felt like I was being compromised. And the number one thing that he told me was, don't tell anybody that you're a martial artist. <laughs> He said, right. because they'll put you to the test. <laughs> exactly. Um, so all the things that he did for me were really monumental because I never would have known how to survive. And I'll give you a perfect example. I have long hair. When people see a picture of me, I have, I have very long hair. And he said to me, what are you going to do with your hair? And I said, well, I think I'm going to tie it up. You know, and he said, really? And he grabbed the top of my head and dragged me all over the dojo by my hair. And then he picked me up and dropped me on the floor. And he looked at me and I looked up at him with horror. And he said, now what do you think you're going to do with that hair? He said, that hair is a weapon for somebody else against you. And I said, I think I'm going to cut it. And he said, that's a great idea. Oh it was things gosh. like that I never thought of. And many of us would never think of those things because 
we in society don't see that part of society. We don't interact with that part of society. So we don't know. So putting me, you know, a, a professional in a corporate job in this environment was like going into no, you know, the twilight zone. Mm-hmm. It was like going to a foreign country. You don't know what to do. You don't know who to talk to. People assume that you know things because they assume the recidivism rates in our country are so high and in the New York City area are so high that they think you've already been there before. So you should know all the things that happen there. I knew nothing. Tell me a little bit about Speak Up Women, Jennifer. I know that this is something that was born out of your experience helping women so they don't have to go through the experiences that you did. Speak Up Women is a conference that involves a skill set that I've seen too often in women and men where people are afraid to speak up. They either feel like they need permission from someone or else they are afraid that they will be judged, made fun of, or penalized. And one of the things I really feel strongly about is in your personal, professional, and philanthropic lives, You have moments in time where you need to speak up. I see people where they are living lives they don't like. I hear them complaining or talking to people about how scared they are, but they don't say anything to the right people. And when you speak up, that is how change occurs. Change is a, is a path. It is a road to making a difference for yourself and others in your life. It is how you live the life that you want. It is the first step, whether you want to create a business, whether you want to make your relationship better, whether that's a relationship with an intimate partner, a parent, a child, a friend, whether you're in business and you see something that could be better. You know, it's something that in our society, When we're little kids, when we're infants, our parents ask us to use your words and speak so that we can tell them what we want and what we need. And somewhere along the line, Fanoush, somebody actually says to that person, shush, be quiet, you're too loud, or, you know, and that person really does shut up. And that's the problem, Farnoosh, is that we in society and too many people have taken that and internalized it. And are so much in a position where they can, where they won't speak up for the things that they want, that they need, that they feel, that they that they see. And this is something to me where I literally, after my experience, I have spoken up. I came out of Rikers, you know, where people helped me build a website. They said we're putting up a website with the truth. We are floored by what's happened to you, and we want to help you. And then I became part of this organization that could happen to you. And we're right on the cusp of, you know, passing this bill in the New York state uh, legislature that would be the first in the nation answer to the question, who's prosecuting the prosecutors and putting a commission, an oversight commission for prosecutorial conduct in place in New York state. So when you start speaking up, things really change. Things really have the opportunity to change, but more so on a very individual level, Farnoosh, for yourself, for your listeners, for me, for people around me, something happens where we start to shy away from that opportunity. We're afraid there's something there that we're scared of. And it takes a lot of courage for somebody to speak up. And I want to fan the flames of that courage. I want people to be able to have the lives they've imagined. 
but they're going to need to open their mouths and talk about it with the people in their lives so that those people can say the magic words. How can I help you? I understand what you want now. I understand what you need. I understand what you don't like. How can we make things so that they support the life that you want to live? That's magic. Mm -hmm. Because this is a show about money, I wanted to ask you along the same lines of speaking up, how does one speak up for themselves when it comes to the important things in their life around money, making more, finding the right investments? I mean, I I find that communication when it comes to money is one of the hardest things to master, um, communication with yourself, with your partner, with your advisor, where do you begin if you feel that you have insecurities or confusion or shyness around talking about money? Because that is the first step, right? It's like being able to articulate what you need and what you want. But sometimes we don't even know what we want. It's a great question. And it's so true for many people. They want to speak up, but they're not sure what words to use. And a lot of that comes from clarity. I always like to say clarity is key. If you're clear about what you want, you're going to be able to get it and get to it much faster. The road is much clearer for not only you, but anyone you're going to speak to about it. So one of the things that I like to recommend as a writer as well is take a piece of paper and write some notes down to yourself. What is it that you really want? And why is it that you want that? Because if you start the dialogue with yourself, you'll start to be able to see some clarity around what it is that you're really asking for. And money is funny, I always like to say, and I said that oftentimes as a certified financial planner, because people, the way that they interact with money conversations are different than other conversations because money makes people nervous oftentimes. So asking for more money or talking about doing something that involves finances can oftentimes put someone at odds with themselves. You know, and when they're really in that position of being nervous, they're not quite sure what to say. So write it down and actually look at what it is that you're asking for. And then start to think about what is it like in each position of this conversation? What's it like in your position? What's it like in the position of the other person that you're having the conversation with? And don't try to have the conversation for them. You know, you can imagine all the things that they might say. But the thing that you want to do is be really clear about what you want to say and what it is that you want. I always say, make sure that you know what it is that you want. Decide what you want. That really becomes your North Star of being able to say, this is what I want to get to. Now, what I want to do is I want to ask you for help to help me get there. And this is what I need. And if part of what you need is money, then you need to be willing to ask for it. Right. No one's going to just volunteer and offer you money. That doesn't happen in this world. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, most of the time it does not. And, you know, it's really um, one of the things that happened to me in this, in this, you know, horrible journey, so to speak, which really turned out to be magical and indeed much larger than just me, was that um, people did not 
offer me money, but people did offer me help. And one of the things that is so important is that if you understand where you want to go, it's sort of like Stephen Covey had said for so many years, and many people still use this, begin with the end in mind. You have to really understand what it is that you want, because when you do, people will help you, you know, whether that is starting a new business, moving to a new place, changing your relationship status. All of these things take some really smart clarity on your part because people can't do everything that you need them to. And they're certainly not just going to open their checkbook and say, here. Right. You have to be able to talk to them and talk to them authentically. This is who I am. This is what I want. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're 25 or 65 or 45. What you really need to do is understand who are you, what do you want, and be willing to talk to people about it. Because I promise you, when you start opening your mouth, things will change. And Farnoosh, I have a great anecdote for you. I have several people in my life that that are in my life and part of this speak up journey with me. And they've turned to me and said, you know, there's this person in my life I've needed to speak up to about such and such. And you have motivated me. (laughs) You have actually made it possible for me to feel like I can have that conversation. And they have. And things have been changing for them. And they keep coming back to me saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is stuff that's been lingering in some cases for years. And I think several of us in society have this same issue. Don't let it wait another day. We're, we're not here for very long on this earth and in this life. You should be living your best life, but it has to start with you. Well, on that note, Jennifer Wilkoff, thank you so much for joining us. I could talk to you for another hour, but I'd love to actually invite you back. I didn't even get a chance to ask you my standard so money questions, but what we talked about was so much more important and interesting and good luck with your lawsuit. Do you know when that's going to hopefully come to fruition at the end, a a verdict of some sort? I don't because unfortunately, um, the wheels of justice, as the cliche goes, Uh, turn very slowly, but it is something that it's worth it. It's something that for too many people, I have heard what has happened to them. I understand what's going on and it's not okay. It's just not okay. And for me, that's part of the reason where, yes, the case is about me and what happened to me, but I don't want them to do it to somebody else. And if I don't speak up, nobody will And it will happen to someone else. Yeah. Well, I kind of see this turning into a movie. I don't know about you. (laughs) Has Hollywood been knocking on your door? Um, I, I would love to answer that question, but I know at the moment I probably should, uh, abstain. Yes. Okay. (laughs) How appropriately said. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you is not enough. It's pretty remarkable. I don't know many people who could come through an experience like that and have such a positive take on life. And not only that, insist for a life where they're helping people. That's incredible and something that we can all definitely learn from. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And I appreciate being with you. And I'd be happy to join you again at any time. And I really wish you the very best of good fortune and your listeners too. 
That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Jennifer, and I know you do, go to Jennifer S. Wilkov. Dot com. Her inaugural Speak Up Women conference is going to be held on Saturday, March 5th, this Saturday, March 5th at the UN. This is a conference that was born out of her own experiences as someone who was denied the opportunity to speak up and she paid a powerful price for that. So check out Speak Up Women if you're in New York City this March 5th at the United Nations. All this information at somoneypodcast.com where you can check out the transcript, the audio, and the comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And while you're there and you're checking it out and you're starting to maybe develop some questions about your life and money and career, send me those thoughts. Click on Ask Farnoosh. That goes directly into my inbox. I read every single question and most of them make it on the Friday episodes of So Money. We dedicate that Friday episode to answering your money questions. So I hope to hear from you. Thanks so much for tuning in as always. See you right back here tomorrow for Ask Farnoosh. And in the meantime, I hope your day is so money. So money.